Radio MD, welcome to the show. Can you hear me okay, kids? You're good? <clears throat> Doc, I got you fine, buddy. All right. Hey, great day, uh, except for this time change. This always throws me off. I don't know about you guys. I think it's going to make me more uh, susceptible to coronavirus, too. So I'm really upset. I'm thinking about suing the federal government or the World Health Organization. I don't know if I'll get anywhere, but... Uh, <laughs> I missed an hour of sleep. Now I'm not happy. Well, by the way, the coronavirus. Oh gosh, what a what a great topic. I mean, uh, really sweeping the world, and it's got everybody upset. And, and in northern Italy, did you see they've got over six thousand cases in the Lombardy uh, state region, which is northern Italy, Milan, 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 uh, Milano, as they say, in Venice, Venezia, and. Uh, Everybody's wondering, well, why is it ripping through there so so aggressively? Well, if you've ever been to Venice and you've walked around, it's a, it's a city built on a marsh, basically, a man-made islands, pretty much. And uh, the streets are very narrow. There's a lot of canals. I mean, you, you cannot really walk more than three wide down a street in, in Venice, or you'll bump into somebody, you'll knock somebody over. So, And it's, it's a, a popular tourist area. So it's densely packed, and one person coughs or sneezes uh, in a little little road or alleyway that is part of the Venetian uh, transportation system. And there are no cars when you get onto the onto the island part. It's all by foot. Uh, the The traffic is by waterway, so you take a water taxi or a gondola or a, your own motorboat or whatever if you want to get from one canal area to another in a hurry. But otherwise, it's all on foot. So one person coughs and 100 people walk through it within a minute or two. It's, it's, uh, it, it's not surprising that it would be so, so rampant in, in, in northern Italy. And Milan is a, a pretty densely uh, populated city as well. We were in Milan. Great city, beautiful city. Venice one night is more than enough. Oh, my God. It's like Disney World for adults. Uh, more trinket and junk stores and, and uh, souvenir shops than, than you can count Carter's Little Liver Pills. So I'm not surprised. Now, they have uh, so far recorded over 6,000 cases in Italy, and they've locked down the northern states pretty much. So they've got millions of people that they're putting under semi-quarantine. And you can go out and eat in certain areas between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. to a restaurant but the restaurateurs are not allowed to have anybody sitting closer than a meter, which is about three feet from each other. I'm not quite sure if this is going to make a big difference, but uh, because if you've ever seen videos of the, uh, the, the spray that comes out, the, the, the mist of uh, 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 juices that come out of your nose and your mouth when you cough, 
you know, it goes out three or four feet. So uh, I don't know that that's going to make a, a whole lot of difference. Certainly it'll reassure the public. But what can we do? Well, the main thing is to cover your mouth if you're coughing or if you have a cold or the flu or uh, strep throat or something, then you need to wear a mask if you're going out in public so you don't cough on other people because that's the problem. See, that's how we're going to spread it. These are airborne illnesses, uh, the the virulence, the ability to transmit this virus, this coronavirus, is uh, uh, easier. It's easier to transmit than the influenza virus. It's a little harder to transmit than the measles virus, according to the CDC. <clears throat> but it, it is still uh, highly transmissible person to person just by coughing or, or coming into contact with uh, the spray from somebody's uh, sneezing or coughing, uh, the uh, the airborne viruses are carried on the micro droplets that come out of our mouth and our nose. And so that's the problem that we're going to have. Uh, and I know we're running out of mass. So what can you do if you're sick and you don't have a, a availability of a surgical mask that you can put on? Well, you can go up to Joanne Fabric or your local fabric store, and they've got elastic bands that you can purchase. They're cheap. You know, they're two or three bucks for a pack. And then you can go to, well, at Joanne, you can even get material there and just cut a little square, uh, put a knot in the corners, uh, take a piece of the elastic and tie that around the knot, and it's it's uh, and fit it to, over your ears so you got one piece of elastic on one side to the top and bottom knot and, and another piece of elastic on the other side. And that gives you a little mask. Uh, of course, the denser the fabric, the denser the weave, the knit, uh, the less likely any droplets are to escape through the mask when you cough or sneeze. Now, the CDC is saying don't wear a mask if you're not sick because you're more likely to touch your face and adjusting it, and uh, that will cause you to transmit the virus that you may have picked up on a door handle or a banister uh, or a tabletop onto your face or into your nose or your mouth or your eyes, where then the virus can get in through the mucous membranes and infect us. Um, I have been wearing surgical masks, of course, all of my life because I'm a doctor and I was raised with two doctors. So th these are not new to me and I hate the things. I hate them. Uh, they drive me nuts. Uh, I, I don't like it. I feel smothered. Um, and I'd rather just wear a cloth mask if I have to and make one of my own. We used to have cloth masks back in the day. You probably don't, don't remember that, Ken, but that because you're a youngster. <laughs> but uh, we, we actually had for surgical masks, uh, they were cotton and they were a tight knit, tight weave. And they had straps on them or, or ties, and we'd tie them around our head. And uh, they were actually more comfortable than the paper ones that we get, these microfiber ones that we get now and use. So I don't think that it's necessary for you to wear a mask if you're not sick. Uh, good hand hygiene is important, and the, uh, the common sense of staying away from people who are sick, and if you have a family member who is sick, then you need to uh, insist that they wear a mask even in the house so they don't spread their cold and their virus to someone else in the house. So this is a, a big deal, and I think we have about 
the CDC on, on March 7th reported 164 cases total in the United States with 11 deaths. I think it's a little higher than that now over the weekend. It's picked up, what is today, the 8th or the 9th? I believe this is the 8th. The 8th. So we're we're probably, you know, somewhere in the two to 500 range. Uh, but the CDC is going to lag a day or two because the reporting is by the states to the CDC. And so they may have data from last Thursday or Friday at their disposal. But really, it's not that many people. Now, here's the most interesting thing. that you, The Koreans, oh, my God, I'm, I'm married to one, so I know all about this. They have devised a really cool way of checking for the virus without you having to go to the doctor, even get out of your car. They've got drive-up windows now in a couple of cities, and it's spreading all over Korea now. And the test kits are with the personnel. The personnel are in their spacesuits, their hazmat suits, you know, so they've got their gloves and their masks and their protective glasses. And you pull up like you do at Mickey D's or Burger King or Chick-fil-A, and uh, they hang their head out into your car, and you you hold your head up, and they swab your nose, and then you go park, and they come out in five or ten minutes and tell you whether or not you're positive. And so they've got over 6,000 cases now. I'm sure over the weekend it's gone up. It's probably seven or 8,000. And they've recorded, when they had recorded about 6,000 positive cases, they'd only recorded, uh, well, less than 50 deaths. So let's do the math. Uh, let's see how virulent, how deadly this really is. Not virulent, how deadly. We know it's virulent. We know it's easily transmitted. Deadly. Okay, 10% of 6,000 is 600. 1% of 6,000 is 60. So this has killed, uh, with the Koreans doing a really bang-up job of, of uh, detection and record-keeping, uh, less than 1% of the people that have contracted it in South Korea. And the South Korean healthcare system is fairly similar to ours. They have good hospitals and uh, uh, good medical equipment and good resources. They have IV fluids, blood transfusions, antibiotics. They have all the things that we have. Uh, and so I think that it would be comparable to look at their healthcare system and ours to put them side by side. Now, the difference between South Korea and the United States is you have a, a much more densely uh, populated country in South Korea. So you've got you've got a country the size of Florida with uh, three times the population, and and Seoul, South Korea, is you know one of the ten biggest cities on the planet. So you know everything's going to rip through there. The subway system is unbelievably huge. And a lot of these shopping malls are underground. They're, they're in the subway stations, and they're huge. I mean, they are full-size shopping malls, and the subway stations connect to high-rise malls and shopping centers and uh, office buildings in downtown Seoul. Very modern city. Really nice place to visit if you, uh, if you like big cities. It's, it's a fun place to go. Not right now, of course. I didn't say now. Calm down. You can wait a year until this virus is under control. But uh, it's, it's easy to see how, in a country like South Korea, the virus could spread so quickly. And uh, it's easy to see that the, the, the excellent work that their health uh, system is doing has shown us that this is 
no more deadly than the influenza virus, which is less than 1% of the people who contract it die. However, the problem, again, is that this is so virulent. It's so easy to spread and catch. And having said that, <clears throat> you just have to take the simple precautions that that uh, the CDC and doctors and Dr. Bill, people like me, are, are telling you to do. And uh, I'm going to tell you how to make uh, some hand sanitizer. That's pretty easy to do uh, after we... We've talked about the face mask, so we'll, we'll go to the hand sanitizer. Now, the, the hand sanitizer is nothing but isopropyl alcohol. You can get 91% isopropyl alcohol uh, at uh, Walgreens and CVS. Uh, you can order it online. It, it needs to be at least 60% and preferably higher because you want about a 50% solution once you have mixed this together. So you're going to mix two-thirds cups of rubbing alcohol. See if you can get the 91%. So you can get your measuring cup and two-thirds cup of rubbing alcohol. And pour that in your bowl. Then get that aloe vera gel. My son's got two bottles of it that he hadn't used if anybody needs some. Uh, and you, you can get that at the drugstore, too. That's just that, that green goopy stuff. And you do a cup of that with your rubbing alcohol in a mixing bowl, and you mix it up, and you can put it through a funnel to get out any particulate matter. And you can get some little mini travel size bottles, or what we use at the office is we just go out to Sam's Club and get a, a half dozen or a dozen of the uh, ketchup bottles. You know what I'm talking about, Ken? You know those uh, those cone little cone tip ketchup bottles you can squeeze the ketchup out of? Sure, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and you can just use that. Just don't mix keep, them up. Yeah, don't. Yeah, well, the ketchup is red, and the the hand sanitizer oh. will be slightly green. Okay, good. Okay. okay, but now if you want to mix them and lick your fingers, that's your prerogative. <laughs> I'm not sure how it'll taste, but uh, now if you want to add a little drop of lavender or vanilla or some essential oil or uh, some something to soothe your hands a little bit, some kind of soothing lotion, you can put that in there too. Then. What we do at the office is we just put this stuff in a in a ketchup bottle. You know, we mix up our own stuff, or if we're using uh, some kind of a sanitizer on the skin, like betadine or hibiclens, hexachlorophene, uh, we just put it into put the liquid into a, a, a ketchup bottle, and then you just turn it over and squirt some out, and that'll work quite well. So it's very simple: two thirds cup rubbing alcohol, get the ninety one percent. It'll work better. One cup aloe vera gel, mix it up, spoon it, funnel it, mini travel size bottles, ketchup bottles, whatever you got lying around the house, and uh, put a bottle in each of the bathrooms in the house, uh, carry a little mini travel bottle with you, and there you go. So then you got your hands under control. And if you are sick, stay home. Or if you have to go, you know, if you're a doctor and you have to work, then you put on a mask, which is what the doctors are doing at the hospital uh, with a cough or a cold. And I don't know if I talked to you last week. I can't remember. Did I talk about the guy that came in uh, from the Bahamas? We flew him in air ambulance. Did I, did I mention I him don't believe week? we talked about that last week, no. Yeah, interesting situation. He got sick in the Bahamas. He had a high fever, temperature of 104 and a little bit of a headache, and uh, he was 
on one of the islands that has absolutely no medical resources. And so the travel insurance company, which I work with closely, uh, called me and said, hey, Doc, will you take this guy? And I said, yeah, we'll take him, no problem. And so they air evac him. They get a little jet, and they, they outfit these little jets with uh, like a little uh, intensive care unit room, and they're called air ambulances. And they flew him over from the Bahamas to St. Pete and put him in an ambulance, took him up to the emergency department. And, and so the ER doctor calls me, and uh, he's concerned because we had mentioned meningitis, a viral encephalitis meningitis, and some viruses can get into the brain and cause a brain infection as well as a systemic infection. The guy really didn't have that much of a headache, but <clears throat> the question was, if he did, uh, what do we do? Well, then, of course, the coronavirus came up because he had traveled from, he had been on vacation in Hawaii uh, last month. He lives out in Vancouver. And three weeks ago, he was there. And, of course, Vancouver is a hot spot because there's a lot of travel from uh, from Asia, from China to Vancouver. A lot of Chinese have uh, emigrated to the west coast of, of Canada. And then he was in the Bahamas and, you know, cruise ships stop and all that. So the alarm went off and uh, all of a sudden everybody in the ER is panicked because – they're saying, oh, my God, what if he has coronavirus? And he had already been coughing all over the ER. And so uh, the ER doctor uh, said, well, we better test him. So he called the health department and gave all the information to the health department. Health department said he doesn't fit the profile. This is not coronavirus, and we're not going to waste a test kit on him, so don't bother sending it in. And so we admitted him to the intensive care unit in an isolation room because the nurses were all upset and everybody's all masked and gowned up. And, uh, you know, I walk in without anything on and, oh, they hit the ceiling and they're like, well, if you get it, then you'll spread it to everybody else. I said, listen, if he's been coughing in the ER for two hours before he got to the floor, believe me, the whole hospital is now infected with coronavirus. There's just no way you're going to stop it. The, the ER nurses are going to go to the lunchroom and eat. Uh, the, uh, the ER techs are going to go out to the waiting room to bring people in. I mean, you know, it's too late. So at any rate, it turned out he had pneumonia. He didn't have coronavirus. He didn't even have encephalitis, even though the spinal tap, which uh, checks for the, uh, the fluid in, the, in and around the spinal cord in the brain, in the central nervous system, we look at that and we look to see if there are, are uh, infectious cells or bacteria or uh, evidence of a viral infection. We can see if the white blood cell count is elevated. And his was, eh, you know, a couple of cells over normal. And uh, it looked like a virus, but, you know, you can have inflammation of the lining of the brain and the, uh, and the spinal cord from outside without having an infection inside of the lining around the brain and the spinal cord, and it can elicit an inflammatory response. And uh, the infectious disease doctor, and I, I got into it with her yesterday, she's wonderful, I love her. She had stopped the antibiotics on this guy, which I had started, because I looked at him and examined him, and I said, this is pneumonia. This is, this is an atypical pneumonia. And uh, at any rate, so she said, well, you know, Obviously, the CFS, the, the spinal fluid was consistent with viral pneumonia, and so I stopped the antibiotics. But you 
Dr. Handelman were so smart when you gave him fluids because then the pneumonia fluffed out. On the initial chest x-ray, you didn't see it because he was a little dry. And so these pneumonia uh, infections where, where you have bacteria and white blood cells that are conglomerating inside of the lung, uh, initially they may not show up if you're dry uh, because you need some fluid in there. And once you get some fluid in the body, uh, then that sucks that fluid in because that's like a, it's like a sponge that's hypertonic, you know, this, this dying bacteria in the blood cells and all that. And so then it fluffs out. But, you know, his symptoms were consistent with uh, uh, a community-acquired pneumonia. And there's an atypical pneumonia that's running through the, the Canadian population, mycoplasma pneumoniae, which is an atypical bacteria. It's a small uh, primitive bacteria it doesn't have a cell wall. It lives inside the cell instead of attacking uh, areas between the cells. It actually gets into the cells in the lungs and uh, uh, does the damage that way. Nevertheless, we had a big scare, Ken, and <laughs> the nurses are all they're always mad at me anyway because I refuse to wear a mask. I'm, I've, if somebody's got tuberculosis or some highly contagious disease, uh, and uh, you know, I know that uh, that they got MRSA or or Pseudomonas or one of these bacteria that are really sticky. Uh, then I will put on a mask and gloves. But overall, I'm I'm, I'm not all that sold on like the CDC on wearing masks for everything. I don't think it's going to. Uh, in the in the course in the hospital setting, it's important because we don't want to transmit from one person to another. But my feeling is is I probably come in contact with almost everything everybody I, I treat has had, and uh, I've already spread it all over the country anyway, so it's too <laughs> late. <laughs> you know, I've traveled all over the United States. I've been to every state except Hawaii, and coughed on everybody in the state that I could. Well, I'm starting, to be, I'm starting to become optimistic, a little optimistic now about this whole situation, only because I, for a long time I was hearing you know, people going into the hospital, going into the hospital. Now I'm starting to hear stories about people being released from the hospital. So obviously this is a treatable, and people shouldn't probably panic as much as they have in some cases. Yeah, this is, this is uh, you, you weren't with me when the Ebola virus came through, and everybody was panicking about that because in sub-Saharan Africa it had a 90% death rate. Okay, well, if you're in the bush in sub-Saharan Africa, out in the country, in a little village, and you're 100 miles from a hospital, and even that hospital doesn't have IV fluids, uh, there's no uh, access to uh, blood transfusion supplies, there's no antibiotics. I mean, you know, you can go to the hospital and get some rudimentary treatment, uh, but uh, if you got the Ebola virus and you're already a little bit dehydrated or emaciated, you're probably going to die. But I said and I'll say this again about the Ebola virus, the Ebola virus is going to kill more people. I mean, the uh, corona is going to kill more people in the United States than Ebola would have. But I would, I said about the Ebola, I doubt anybody in the United States will die from Ebola. I think we had a handful of cases. They all were fine. Why? Because even though they had diarrhea and hemorrhaging in their bowel, we gave them fluids. We gave them blood. We supported them. We kept their fever down. We've got the resources. And the experience. So, I mean, you, you looked at that guy and yeah. said, this is not what what you guys are saying it is. It's pneumonia. And that comes from years of experience. That's why I like to see gray hair on my doctors and gray hairs on my pilot. That's right. And you know what? It's, <laughs> like, I, it's like I told Denise, the infectious disease doctor. I said, listen, 
You weren't even born when I started practicing medicine, you little twit. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. To well, <laughs> All right, Doc. <laughs> but uh, you, you know, you and 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 please don't 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 get me wrong because I make mistakes just like any other doctor does. Uh, but I think that we have to use a little reasonableness with this. Uh, if you got somebody in the hospital that you think has uh, a highly in, contagious virus, then you need to uh, you need to put a mask on them, and that's what we should be doing. Is they should be wearing a mask, uh, and and that way they aren't coughing into the room into the air. We have rooms, certain rooms in the hospital. They're called negative pressure rooms, and they actually have uh, an exhaust system that exerts a little bit of a negative pressure in the room, so that all of the uh, all of the spray, all of the micro droplets and all of the junk and all the bacteria and viruses are sucked up and out. So we have options, we have abilities, and we have technologies in the United States that a lot of the world doesn't have, including northern Italy. At any rate, now you know how to make a mask. Now you know how to make some gel for your hands, sanitizing gel. Now you know how to be like Dr. Bill. Just walk around and forget about it. If you're going to die, you're going to die. You know? <laughs> And uh, don't worry, you know, don't worry. It's all good. Wash and your hands. Wash your hands. And remember, it's not politically correct to offer somebody a Corona <laughs> at a party right now, unless you give the, them the Lyme also. The Lyme apparently will kill the virus. So, no, not oh, really. That, just, don't go, don't go there, just, buddy. <laughs> no, we can't go there. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go grab a cup of Joe, and I'll be right back. We'll talk some politics when I get back. I'm Dr. Bill, your crazy MD. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. The latest report from U.S. health officials indicate that coronavirus cases in this country stand at about 400. Half of the states have them. Indiana, Minnesota, Nebraska, and Pennsylvania have recently reported their first cases. The total U.S. death toll, low by world standards, remains at 19. Every month, a group of London artists paint their faces with random colored shapes and patterns aimed at defying facial recognition cameras. And, uh, London has some of the most cameras of any city in the West. They walk silently through various parts of the city to provoke discussion about the growing use of the controversial technology. Does anybody really know what time it is? Most of the country is back on daylight saving time today. You should have set your clocks one hour forward before you went to bed last night. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 7 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. 
Most insurance plans accepted, and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments, so call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Balance of Nature. Changing the world, one life at a time. I went to have my blood test done a few weeks ago, and I met the doctor, and he was really encouraged by my progress. I brought him the two bottles, and I showed him what I was taking, and he started looking at all the ingredients. He said, you may be onto something here, and I'm like, oh, wow, and he said, you just keep that up. You're, you're helping your health by doing that. And I'm like, whoa, endorsement by the doctor. <laughs> Don't wait to see what getting over 10 servings of whole fruits and vegetables every day can do for you. Right now, Balance of Nature is offering free shipping and 35% off on any new preferred order of fruits and veggies. Start your journey to better health today by calling 1-800-2468-751 or by going to balanceofnature.com and make sure to receive this special radio offer by using discount code RESULTS. Take AM860, The Answer, with you wherever you go with our mobile app, TheAnswerTampa.com, Alexa, TuneIn, iHeart, and at Radio.com. Hi, it's Hugh Hewitt on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Kurt Schlichter is sitting in for me as I go off on vacation. Kurt Schlichter, Colonel Kurt's got a brand new book coming out, and he's got hot takes on the Michigan primary ahead this week, as well as Idaho, Mississippi, Missouri. Colonel Kurt hosts on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. At six on AM 860, the answer. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. A mix of clouds and sun for today. Mild, high 75. Partly cloudy night, low 58. Partly sunny tomorrow, Monday's high 79. Then a partly cloudy night, low 62. Sun and high clouds in the morning Tuesday. Cloudy to partly sunny for the afternoon, high 81. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM860, The Answer. And I'm back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD, coming at you on AM 860, The Answer, every Sunday, 9 to 10 a.m. We are at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. Talked about uh, how to protect yourself from this coronavirus and a little update on what's going on. Let me just give you the quick recap if you're just joining the show. Uh, the Koreans have done a nice job of screening and uh, tallying up uh, the number of people that are testing positive in the deaths. And the death rate in South Korea is less than 1%, which is along the same lines as the influenza virus, if you contract it. The hand sanitizer that I talked about making is pretty easy. It's a two-thirds cup rubbing alcohol, get the 91%. You can get that at the drugstore, probably at Walmart or Sam's Club or Costco. Uh, one cup of aloe vera gel, you can get that as well. Mixing bowl, spoon, funnel, uh, put it in some kind of a, a bottle. I use the ketchup bottles at the office. You can get those out at Sam's Club as well or Costco. Uh, you can put them in little mini travel size bottles and carry them with you. And you can even scent it with a little lavender or vanilla 
and you know vanilla right out of your your uh, your your spice rack will work. Gives it a little little fun. So do that, and then you can make a mask easily. Uh, you can go to Joanne Fabric or one of the fabric stores or Michaels or craft stores and probably find some uh, uh, elastic uh, bands, uh, some thin elastic bands. You can just buy some throwaway paint rags or uh, old diapers, or uh, you can even get some material at uh, the, uh, the uh, Joanne's or the fabric stores, wherever you're going and cut them into squares, tie a knot in the corners, make them big enough so you can tie a knot in the corner of the, of the, uh, of the material, the denser, the weave, the better. And uh, then you can just take your elastic band, tie it around it, uh, fit it to yourself, tie one end to the top and then the other end to the bottom on both sides and put it around your ears. If you want to clean it at the end of the day, dip it in your aloe, uh, your alcohol and aloe gel or Wash it, and you know you'll be fine. You can reuse it, and that's for people who are symptomatic, who are sick, to wear the mask. We don't have to wear the mask if we're not sick. Uh, it's not going to really help us that much. Now I'm going to shift gears, unless you call and you have a question about the coronavirus. Uh, I'm going to shift gears here. Uh, one of my Canadian patients who thinks I'm wonderful because. The two times he's gotten really sick, he's been he's been in St. Petersburg, and I've taken care of him, and he thinks I've saved his life. I'm, you know, if this were 150 years ago, he probably would have died, but now it's you know it's it's pretty minor stuff for for doctors. For him, it's a big deal. He had an adhesion, a a, a piece of scar tissue around his small bowel, and it obstructed his bowel. And of course, if you don't get that fixed, you're going to die. Uh, so he. Uh, he got sick. We got him in the hospital. We tried to get it to open up medically, didn't do it. So then it, we had to have the surgeon go in, and it's like a ten-minute procedure to go in there now with the laser and and with the uh, with the robotics uh, or the fiber optics. It's just little itty bitty incisions in the uh, in the ba- in the belly wall, and then you go and you snip the adhesion and release the bowel, and ah, then he's gone. He's out. And so he asked me, what do you think of Trump? He came in the office for follow-up a couple of days ago. I said, I love him. He's the best president in my lifetime. I've never seen anything like this. And he said, oh, my God, he's a dictator. He's a Hitler. And uh, and so we started to talk. And you, you have to understand that uh, even though Canada is a, quote, quote, democracy and there's, quote, quote, free speech, there really isn't. I mean, the news is censored. Uh, there's uh, hate speech laws. Um, you can't get Fox News on your cable unless you pay extra. Although CNN is on every freaking news channel, TV channel, uh, uh, cable company. They all have Fox, uh, uh, CNN, but they don't have Fox. So you can't get Fox unless you buy it in Canada. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't even think about it. They, I mean, uh, they live in Canada and they're not exposed to it and they don't think about it. And they've been raised in uh, a socialistic country with uh, a, a, a parliament uh, that evolved from a constitutional monarchy. And a parliamentary system is basically a, a single branch of government that is in control of everything. Parliament appoints judges. Uh, parliament uh, is also the executive branch, the head of the party that has the majority in in parliament is the prime minister. Um, He's not 
elected directly by the people. In some parliamentary governments, they'll have a, an honorary president who's elected by by popular vote, but the prime minister is the head of the party that won the most votes in the most current election. And so it's quite different. And I said, what are you talking about to my patient? I said, Trump's not a dictator. He said, well, he vetoes all the bills that Congress sends him that are for the people. I said, well, first of all, we have three separate branches of government in the United States. We have the executive branch, which is headed by the president. He's elected by the states, by the popular vote within the state, and it goes state by state. Uh, not that every state has the same uh, number of electoral votes, but each state is allocated so many electoral votes. So, you know, it's an indirect uh, Republican form of government, uh, and it gives the states some power as well as the people. The people have a voice, and so the executive branches are president. The legislative branch is Congress, and they are independent of the executive branch, and the executive branch is independent of the legislative branch. And we have a third branch of government, the judiciary, which is independent of the other two. And there are checks and balances in our government so that if Congress has a simple majority of Democrats in the House and the Senate, and they want to pass uh, an increased tax bill because they want the federal government to grow and they, they want to make people uh, more dependent on the federal government, and the president doesn't agree with it, uh, he has the power under our Constitution to veto it. Well, what can Congress do? Well, Congress can override a veto by a two-thirds majority. So if Congress says, well, we disagree with you, Mr. President, and they bring it back and they put it through again for a vote, if two-thirds of the House uh, members and two-thirds of the Senate members vote to override the president's veto, then it becomes law whether the president likes it or not. Now, if you have a simple majority of Democrats in the House and the Senate, you're not likely to get two-thirds uh, to override a presidential veto. So that's a check and a balance, and it's a way of slowing down the the popular demands that are not necessarily in the long run in the best interest of the country. And, and that's part of what we have written into our Constitution uh, because of the lessons we learned as a child of England. Now, the judiciary, and my friend, uh, my patient said, uh, well, you know, Trump, uh, he, he, he overrode the federal judge when she was uh, sentencing that guy. And he was supposed to get eight years, and he only got four and a half because of what Trump did. I said, first of all, Trump can't override the federal judiciary. The only thing that you can do to a federal judge is to have uh, Congress impeach them. They can be impeached, and if they're impeached, they're removed. And I think Alcee Hastings was a federal judge who was impeached because he was a crook. And again, that takes a two-thirds majority of the Senate for you to be removed from your federal judgeship. A federal judge is uh, nominated by the president, uh, approved by the Senate, and that doesn't, that doesn't mean just the Supreme Court. That's any federal judge. They're all nominated by the executive branch, by the president, and they have to be approved by the Senate. And then they become a federal judge, and they're there for life. Those are lifetime appointments. And the president cannot do anything to them. 
I mean, he cannot arrest them. He cannot intimidate them. They're, they're beyond that. I mean, the only thing he could do is, is go shoot them, and we don't, we don't do that in this country. So if the president says that eight and a half years for uh, Stone is too much, and he disagrees with it, and he thinks that those sentencing guidelines are wrong, he's not talking to the judge. He's talking to his own Department of Justice, who were the people that made the recommendations, the four attorneys that worked on the case. They made that recommendation. It was Attorney General Barr who said, I think this is too much, and the president had said that. And the attorney general said, you know, I can make these decisions on my own. I don't need the president tweeting and complicating my job. Uh, and so in a nice way, he was saying, Mr. President, shut up. And that's okay. I mean, you know, the attorney general can tell his boss, you're out of line. I mean, my employees tell me when I'm out of line, you know, you're being rude, you're being obnoxious, or we didn't deserve that criticism, or, you know, you need to go take a nap or whatever. So the president doesn't have, any, doesn't have any control over the federal judiciary. Once he appoints somebody and they're seated by the Senate, they're put in place, they're beyond his, his powers, uh, they're beyond his intimidation. And the sentencing guidelines on that were not followed by the four attorneys who were working for the Department of Justice on the Roger Stone case. I looked that up. I went over this a few weeks ago. The top amount is five years for lying to Congress. So the, the guy was being uh, uh, overly punished in the – or would have been overly punished in the, uh, in the recommendations made by the four attorneys who worked on the case for the Department of Justice. And Attorney General Barr was right in saying this is too much. And the federal judge who oversaw the case, it's, it's her decision ultimately. She can send him to whatever she wants, but she also has guidelines she has to follow because she has to answer to the higher-up judges. So it's, it's, uh, they get a report card, and, you know, if they do a bad job, then they can be censured. And uh, if they are censured too often, uh, they can be impeached and removed by the, by the Senate. So – if the guidelines, if the federal law says the maximum amount is five years and $50,000 fine, then that's the most that she can impose on uh, somebody who has committed the crime with the sentencing guidelines that are in the federal code. She can't go beyond that, or she's going to get in trouble with her higher-ups, which are ultimately the Supreme Court justices. They're the ultimate uh, overseers of the judiciary and our, our federal judiciary. So it, it's it's interesting to me, and, and Ken, you probably uh, wonder about this too, how the world looks at us and, and sees us. Well, if they see us through the eyes of CNN and they just see snippets of the president saying, you know, this is egregious and I, I don't want this man sent to jail for eight years, and then the, the judge uh, says, oh, I'm intimidated, and blah, 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 or some news clip that might not even be related to what the president said, and then the guy gets four years, and then the, the world says, oh, that Trump, look at him, he is a dictator, he's dictating to the justices and the judges, and the... no, he's not, but this is what people see around the world, they see CNN. They see CNN, and they don't see anything else. And, of course, if you look at CNN, you're going to see a highly, uh, a highly skewed uh, snippets, uh, 
Uh, it's twisted, and and the president's right. This is this is fake news. This is fake news. And even my father, who was a liberal and a socialist, he said, "Billy, don't take everything you read as fact." Uh, he, he'd say, "Take the news with a grain of salt. It's not all true." <laughs> and this was in the 1950s and 60s. So, you know. You just, uh, uh, by the way, nothing's new. This has been going on since the inception of the republic. Uh, people say, well, how did we get to this system? Why do we have this system and nobody else in the world? Well, you know, we had a bunch of really intelligent guys. It was sort of a, uh, a perfect storm of intellect coming together at the end of the 18th century. And you had had 100 to 150 years of self-rule by these 13 colonies that were separated from England by at least three weeks because that's how long it took at a minimum to take a ship from the United uh, from the, the colonies, what's now the United States, East Coast, New York, or Boston, or Philadelphia, to England or Charleston or, or Savannah. And that's how long it took to get over there. So there, there was a lot of uh, delay between uh, interactions uh, of the colonies and parliament back in London. And so when we said to, to dad, to King George III, after we had contributed to the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War in the 1750s, uh, in 1760 on is considered the beginning of our uh, revolutionary uh, era, we said, okay, Dad, you want us to pay taxes. We understand that. We understand that the that the war against France cost a lot of money. And even though we won and we've got all this land, we've got Canada, we've got all of the United States east of the Mississippi River uncontested, uh, or all of the colonies east of the Mississippi River uncontested, uh, we want to say. We want members in Parliament. You know, if, if you're going to stay home after you're an adult, and uh, and pay rent to the family, uh, you want to stay in household affairs. So uh, if you want chocolate milk uh, when mom goes shopping and you're paying into the household budget for room and board, then mom's supposed to get you chocolate milk. I mean, if, if, you, if you tell her you want a fifth of whiskey, that may not be appropriate, and she may say no, but if you want chocolate milk and, and Swiss cheese and whole wheat bread, uh, certainly there's nothing wrong with, with making that request, that demand. And so we made the demands. We said, look, Dad, if we're going to pay rent to stay at home, we want to stay in household affairs. And George III, Dad, Parliament, they said, no, you're too, you're too immature. You don't know what you're doing. Well, you know what? You can do, you can kiss my anatomy. That's what you can do. And we went through this for 15 years from 1760 to 1775, and we weren't getting anywhere. And finally, we said, We're leaving. Bye. We're leaving home. Dad said, No, you're not. And we said, Yes, we are. And we left, and, and we actually won. And that's why we're here today. We, we got into a family argument, and uh, we beat Dad and his gang up. Uh, we took a whooping too, but we came through it okay. And then you had all these guys who were making these uh, decisions about how to form our government. And they looked back at what they had just been through. And they started primarily with the English Civil War, which was uh, from 1642 to 1651. Now remember, this was uh, a little more than 100 years 
before we formed our government. So we started forming our government in 1775, 1776. So you're talking about something that was still in the collective memory of the colonists. I mean, the English Civil War had devastated the country for a generation. It had com and completely changed the, uh, the, the tone and tenor of government in Great Britain and England. And how did this come about? Well, Charles I uh, was the, the Stuart King who came after Queen Elizabeth, and he uh, felt that he had been given uh, royal power by God, and he wanted to uh, interfere in the war in France, the civil war that was raging, because the French crown was persecuting the Huguenots, who were the Protestants, and England had already gone Protestant, although there were Catholics who were tolerated to a certain extent. <clears throat> and so he said, I need money. And Parliament had the power of the purse strings. And they said, well, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to run this war if you're going to send troops to France? By the way, we don't think it's necessary. We'll, you know, let the continent work out its own problems. Uh, have, you, have we heard this before, Ken? Are we hearing it again now? Certainly, let's, yeah. Yeah, let's, let's get at Let's Brexit, baby. Yeah. Let the continent do its own thing. History always repeats itself. Oh, Doc, re you know. over and over. Yeah. You know, it's not the winners that write history. It's history that writes history. Exactly. It rewrites it and rewrites it. So here we go. And, and the same thing in the 1740s. And so Parliament said, well, we're not giving you money. And so the king was reduced to other avenues of trying to raise money, and he couldn't do it. And he said, well, I'm not even going to call a parliament. And so he didn't call parliament for a decade. And so along comes Cromwell, who's a super religious Puritan and a politico. And he says, we don't need the, the, uh, the, the crown. We don't need royalty. This is nonsense. And that had been in the collective consciousness of the English for centuries. But, uh, you know, people hadn't really acted on it because the kings had usually figured out a way to uh, compromise with, with Parliament and, and, and keep everybody happy. Well, Charles I didn't keep everybody happy, and he had a pretty, a pretty irate group of, of uh, fundamentalistic Puritans. And it wasn't just over money, although money's often involved. It was also over religion. The Puritans were the, uh, the, the, the blue-collar folks. And the crown were the uh, Anglicans. They were the uh, they were the upper crust. And the Puritans said, "Well, you know, we think that religion should be more personalized." And and the crown said, "No, you got to use the Anglican prayer book." And so you got into a religious debate there. It was also a class warfare because the crown, of course, the royalty, the nobles, they were the richers, and the Blue-collar folks, they were the poors. And we've seen this conflict uh, not only in England but all over the world uh, for eons. So it was a class warfare. It was a religious warfare. It was a political warfare. Who's going to rule the country, the crown or parliament? It was also uh, a monetary warfare. And so from 1642 to 51, they went at it. And the, the Puritans under Cromwell had taken over parliament. It was the rump parliament, and Cromwell became a de facto dictator of the country. And he waged war against the, the royalty, the crown. Uh, the roundheads were the, were the Cromwellians and the uh, cavaliers, the, uh, the royalty. 
and and they fought this war, and the 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 Puritans won. They won the war, uh, but it it changed England in the sense that after the war, when Cromwell had had secured and had consolidated his power, and Parliament said, "Well, do you want to be?" king or emperor or dictator or whatever you want to call yourself. Uh, he went and had a, a conversation with God at Westminster Abbey or somewhere. And and I guess God told him, you know, don't do this. You don't need to be emperor. And so he stepped down. Uh, his son was briefly in charge, uh, but then order was restored. Uh, the crown was brought back in, but with limited uh, power because Parliament had implemented some laws which restricted the powers of the of the uh, monarchy, and and so the the uh, Stuarts were brought back in until the late 1680s, and in the 1680s that's when William and of Orange from from Holland and Mary came over and ran the Stuarts off for once and for all, and so the Americans looked back at this and they said, well look you got a branch of government that's parliament, and uh, they're deciding now who the king is and what he shall be to a certain extent. And the judiciary is from that. And this horrible civil war occurred because of all of the conflicts that have arisen from having this one branch of government and the constant infighting that goes on between the chief executive officer of that parliament, the, the king or the prime minister or whoever, and uh, and then the the way that it would morph is once the king, the royalty, the monarchy was put into its place, then you would have somebody like Cromwell who could come up and with a, a strong, large majority of his party could run roughshod over the rest of the country. And so we said, you know what, we need checks and balances. And that's why we have set our government up as three separate branches, so we don't have an English Civil War and have all the problems that England had in the uh, 17th century and all of the upheaval and devastation that, that the country went through. And it wasn't just England, it was Scotland and Ireland, and Cromwell is still a curse word in Catholic Ireland because of the devastation he wreaked on those people in order to secure Northern Ireland as uh, one of the states or uh, one of the kingdoms, sub-kingdoms of Great Britain. And it, it's a sad situation what happened, but the the outcome was ultimately good because it changed the way England rules herself and sees herself and had tempered England tremendously. And it also gave us uh, a negative blueprint, something that we did not want to follow, and pushed us towards what we have now, which is arguably the best form of government on the planet. And I don't know that there is any other country that there are a few countries that have this form of government, but whether or not they're able to function with it, uh, I am uncertain. Certainly, uh, uh, there are countries in the Americas that followed our, our, our pattern, but did not actually... Uh, accomplish what we have accomplished. So for my Canadian friends who don't understand our system of government, Trump is not a dictator. <laughs> He's bound by laws and courts and everything else and the, the, the House and the Senate. And it's, it's a good system. Listen, I love you guys. I'm getting out of here. I am Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Thanks for listening. <laughs>